Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. Less than two weeks into getting the mailroom job, I was pulling up to the office on a day that everyone in the office was actually having a meeting about the new releases. And as I pull into the parking lot, I hear the sound that nobody wants to hear, especially when they're poor. The whoop whoop the sound of a cop car pulling me over right outside of the office. And the office had these huge windows so everybody could see what was happening outside. And I got pulled over for not paying a ticket because I had some ticket that happened like a year earlier and I just didn't pay attention to it because I was a teenager. <laughs> like Teenagers don't really care about that kind of thing. And I also didn't have an address for them to like get it. So I don't even know where this ticket went. But um, I never paid it. Long story short, they threw me up against the cop car right in front of the office and arrested me and took me to jail in Detroit. And I had to stay the whole day there and the whole night there. And I was like completely freaking out because it was, you know, my entire dream, my entire life was to get this job. And then I was like, I totally screwed my entire life up just by not paying this ticket. Hey, friend, welcome back to the Light Watkins show. I'm Light Watkins and I interview ordinary folks just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path, their purpose, or what they've identified as their mission in life. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact and inspire the lives of many other people who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or people who've directly benefited from their work. And today I am in a fascinating conversation with Bridget Hilton and Joe Huff. Bridget and Joe are the authors of an inspiring book called Experiential Billionaire, keyword being experiential. They're not actual billionaires. But here's the thing. Bridget and Joe are obsessed with experiences. And in an effort to unlock the secrets of the power of experiences to transform lives, they have dedicated a lot of years interviewing social science experts and conducting the largest study on life experiences ever done. And they've turned themselves into experiential guinea pigs. Together, Bridget and Joe have trained to be samurai. They've danced with the Northern Lights. They've tracked silverback gorillas. They've stood face to face with hungry lions. They've absorbed lessons from Maasai Mara tribesmen. They've sped across glaciers on dog sleds, built schools for kids in need. They've studied with monks. They developed this hearing aid that they were able to then give 50,000 people hearing. They swam with sharks. They've 
work with A-list celebrities. They've seen the seven wonders of the world. They've given away millions of dollars for social good. They've spoken on stage with people like Sir Richard Branson. They've starred in commercials seen by tens of millions. And they've explored many other experiential riches that life has to offer. And I know when you hear that list of experiences, you're probably thinking to yourself, of course they did all that. They're probably these privileged, rich kids who had trust funds and they didn't have to work real jobs. And that's why they had all that free time to travel the world and and have those cool experiences. I'll be honest, that's what I originally thought. But the reality is that they actually didn't come from money at all. Bridget is from Flint, Michigan. Joe is from Southern California. And both of them grew up in blue collar families And they very much stumbled their way into this power of experiences. And that's what makes this conversation so interesting to see how it all came together with both Bridget and Joe trying to do the nine to five conventional thing and then creating a chance to help people. And that's actually how they met. They met through philanthropy back when they had no money at all. So all in all, it's a great story, and it culminates into this incredible book that they wrote called Experiential Billionaire, and it just shows us how to die with no regrets. And I think you're really going to be inspired by by just hearing how the whole thing evolved. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to Bridget Hilton and Joe Huff. Bridget and Joe, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I actually wasn't sure, Joe, if you were going to be on the podcast because we'd only been talking to Bridget. So I'm super excited that you were able to come on because as I was reading the book, you guys have this really interesting format that I was honestly, I was a little bit skeptical when I first saw, okay, we're going to alternate chapters. I was like, huh, I wonder how that's going to go. And yes, um <laughs> that was a really hard part about writing it, honestly. It yeah, but it worked. I felt like it really worked. And it's like turning between two channels, but talking about the same story. And yeah, it was kind of cool to see that connective tissue in my mind as I was going through the book. So I'm excited to break that down because while I'm interested in the story and the concept, I also want to hear about the process. I think the process is it's really cool about how you guys chose to present this information in this way. So we're talking about Experiential Billionaire, which is the book that you all just came out with. Is something that you've been speaking about, which is how we connected in the speaker community. But I always like to start these conversations off just taking it back so that the audience can get familiar with how you became the person that you are today. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about childhood you say in the book that neither one of you came from money. So tell us where exactly you came from and what was happening in your house as you were growing up. What were your ideas of success like? We'll start with you, Bridget. Sure. I actually think Joe actually probably has the better intro for this question, but and then how we came together. Start with that. We're not going to get to how you came together first. I just want to establish who you were as a young person. So... I grew up in Flint, Michigan, which I'm sure you've heard of from not very positive things like the water crisis or Michael Moore movies and stuff like that. So, you know, I love my family, but everyone that I knew worked for General Motors or Ford. And basically, I didn't know anyone that was an entrepreneur or an artist or anyone that had really like followed 
their passions outside of the auto industry. So I was pretty alone in that. But the thing that I gravitated towards and that I really loved from a very young age was music. And it really gave me the motivation to want to like get out of Flint and to get into like a better world. And at the time there was all these shows on TV, like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, for example. <laughs> and I like was watching that show and just like dreaming and fantasizing about how I wanted to move to California. And this is like when I was a little kid. So when I was old enough to get these kind of crappy jobs, like I would pass out flyers outside of music venues and I would pick up trash at places like Warp Tour, for example, for like $5 an hour. And then I had some jobs like I was an intern at a radio station. I would like, you know, pick up coffee for people there. So I started doing all of these jobs just in like a hope that I would like someday get to this fantasy of like moving out of Michigan and coming to California and working in the music industry. And after like five years of those types of jobs, I finally got an internship at Universal Music Group's office in Detroit, which no longer exists. But at the time that existed and I was 19 and that was like one of the best things that had ever happened to me. So I was like an intern first and then it was, you know, very, you know, basically just like mailing stuff and then, you know, passing out flyers and stuff like that. And then... It's funny, I've never told this story before, but what I did to get the coveted mailroom job, there was like never any job openings there because it's a, it was a really small office. And there was a lot of people in Michigan that wanted to work in an industry like this, but there weren't any jobs. So it was very rare that there was like an opening and it was like a very lower level opening. So what I did to like impress the people at the office was to make a 30, 60, 90 day plan of how I would run the mailroom. <laughs> I've never told anyone this before. <laughs> this is funny, but I guess it must have impressed them enough. Like out of a hundred people that applied for this job, I got that job and I ended up making 20 grand a year, which was like a million dollars to me at the time, because I was literally like living in my car at the time. And then I was like living on different couches around Michigan, around like friends that I had. And I didn't even have like a place to live. So like $20,000 was like literally like winning the lottery to me. And that was, you know, the moment I, I can still remember thinking like, I'm never going to have to really struggle again. Of course, I knew that I was going to have struggles in my life, but not to the point of like, hopefully that I would have to like live out of a car. So that was like one of the best days of my life, even though it was like this mailroom job for $20,000 a year. Talk but, about uh, the worst day of your experience working at that oh, office. Oh. <laughs> I know where you're getting at. So less than two weeks into getting the mailroom job, I was pulling up to the office on a day that everyone in the office was actually having a meeting about the new releases. And as I pull into the parking lot, I hear the sound that nobody wants to hear, especially when they're poor. The, whoop, whoop, the sound of a cop car pulling me over right outside of the office. And the office had these giant, like huge windows. So everybody could see what was happening outside. And I got pulled over for not paying a ticket because I had some ticket that happened like a year earlier and I just didn't pay attention to it because I was a teenager. <laughs> like Teenagers don't really care about that kind of thing. 
And I also didn't have an address for them to like get it. So I don't even know where this ticket went. But um, I never paid it. Long story short, they threw me up against the cop car right in front of the office and arrested me and took me to jail in Detroit. And I had to stay the whole day there and the whole night there. And I was like completely freaking out because it was, you know, my entire dream, my entire life was to get this job. And then I was like, I totally screwed my entire life up just by not paying this ticket. So I sat in jail all night. And then the next morning, I was like, the only person that I can ask for money is like Universal, which is where I was working. And I was like, so I basically asked them to take money out of my first paycheck to pay the bail. (laughs) It was a horrible experience. That wasn't part of the 30 or 60 or 90 day plan, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that wasn't in my plans. But, you know, sometimes the best plans, you just don't know what's going to happen. That was a rough, rough start to that job. But at the end of that, I actually, you know, was able to, after our office shut down in Detroit, I was able to move to California. And that's what really kickstarted a lot of my dreams. So it ended up being okay. You keep phrasing it like, I got this job, but you're taking these leaps of faith, which I was really impressed with because you also mentioned in the book, no one believed in you. So. You were living in your car. I don't know what your friend circle was like at the time or your relationship with your family was like at the time. But, you know, it takes a lot for someone to really bet on themselves in that way. And I don't know if you had any. Did you have any like examples of that? Maybe I know you said you read a lot of biographies of other people. Is that your your role models? I've been asked a lot, like, who was my main role model as a child? And I truly don't. Like I love my family, but I don't look at any particular person as like that was the one person or like a teacher or anything like that. I really feel like the willingness and and wanting to learn about people that were successful was a huge help in my life. And we're living in like such an amazing time, especially now where you can go online and learn from literally the best experts on anything in the world. And that's so cool. I mean, like take like meditation, for example, they can watch your podcast. Like that wasn't available when we were kids, right? So what I would do is instead of going to class when I was in high school or whatever, I would go to the library and just like read biographies of like people that were in the music industry or bands like the Beatles or whoever. And I knew everything, like I knew every single fact about every band and I didn't know a lot about, you know, maybe math or whatever, but uh, (laughs) I knew everything about music and that's what ended up getting me eventually to this job is because they were really like impressed by my knowledge of music. And I wasn't just like trying to be in entertainment to be like, you know, one of those scene people. I really loved it. Like truly, truly deeply loved it. Was there one or two biographies that still stand out today as really fundamental in shaping your early path? I was really into two different genres, which are kind of complete opposite, but similar in some ways. I was really into classic rock and I was really into hip hop. So as a kid, my dream was actually to work for Def Jam. So I was reading the biographies of the people that had started Def Jam and that was my dream. And then when I- Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin. Exactly. So- When I eventually got to Universal, who owns Def Jam, that's who I was like, I'm going to work there. And they were like, "Uh, actually, you're not because you have to be 21 to (laughs) to work at Def Jam. 
So I remember being like so bummed about that. But then I got, I was working for Interscope instead at the time, which was like just as cool as Def Jam. And it has all of these amazing bands. And so it ended up being really great. But it's funny, like looking back as a kid that I was so obsessed with like hip hop and Def Jam. Because obviously, like, you know, at the time, there wasn't, like, the Led Zeppelins of the world, which was my other favorite genre. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, You'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. You also lied when you applied for Universal and said that you were going to college, even though you had no intentions of going to college. Yeah. So Microsoft Paint was my friend and I <laughs> made like a fake letter from the local university. I think it was called Oakland University and said that I was going to school there because they only allow people to work for free, obviously, if you're getting college credit. I don't think it's like legal to just work for free for no credit anymore. So I made up like a fake letter and said that I was going there. And it's so funny. I never told anyone that I worked there until this book came out. And I've been speaking to people that I worked with like 20 years ago. And I was like, oh, by the way, I made that up. (laughs) (laughs) She lied to get a job that pays no money. Right. Right. But it became a pivotal part of the story, which I love. Okay, so then you I mean, moved that's to how the- obsessed I was, though. I was like, I will sleep in my car and get paid nothing and like make up this stuff and like do all this work just so I can like get out of this. Like it really took that. All right, so you moved to Los Angeles. We're going to get back to that. I want to hop over to Joe now and just talk about his earlier years leading up to the moment where you guys cross paths. My childhood was perfect. And so it was just all, everything went exactly according to plan. And yeah, you know, that's it. <laughs> it's funny, like, listen, you know, whenever we tell these stories and Bridget and I, even though we've been working together for over a decade now and on the phone and in person, dozen hours a day, usually, we still 
share stories that neither of us have heard all the time. And we're always having these conversations and these emotions kind of come out when I think about those moments. And we were just actually having this conversation last night about how when I grew up, I remember when I started to realize how in my neighborhood specifically, even that I definitely like my family was the least financially stable of all the people that I knew. Like I had a bike, like my other friends had a bike, but they all had like nice bikes. And I had the absolute cheapest, you know, Kmart bike or, you know, the clothes that I wore were just like, everything was like, it started to become noticeable. And I still think about that stuff to this day, like how long-term some of those effects, you know, are, but, you know, growing up, I grew up initially in Chicago and then we moved to Southern California when I was pretty young. And my parents, you know, they, they worked really hard. They, they, like a lot of folks, you know, they worked really, really hard to provide for us. But at that time, you know, that meant that, you know, there was a lot of unsupervised moments. And I had two older brothers as well, which, you know, they were three and four years older than me. So back in those days, like people left their kids home and we were quote unquote latchkey kids. So, which I think nowadays you'd get arrested and thrown in prison for like decades if anyone hurts you, leaving your nine-year-old, whatever, home alone with their older sibling that's 12. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that's what we did. Um, and, you know, we learned a lot, obviously, like trial by fire kind of stuff. But I got into a lot of trouble when I was young. School had been pretty easy for me, but I got in a lot of trouble. And, you know, there was a lack of role models, kind of like what you just brought up with Bridget, or I guess a lack of aspirational kind of things in general outside of TV, you know, so, so I definitely was a kid that when I watched TV, I thought, you know, yeah, I want to be rich like that. I want to have mansions and Ferraris. And, you know, I thought that was kind of the, the cure all for whatever else, you know, ails you in life. And, I got into a lot of trouble in like my high school years where the friends I had were people that, you know, we bonded closely, but it was somewhere short of, if not an actual kind of gang kind of situation where the mentality, you know, was, you know, the bonds were around like nothing positive. You know, we basically together got into a lot of trouble. There was a clear direction where all of my friends in this group were going and it wasn't college or anything potentially helpful in life, I would say. So that became such an issue that I wound up actually missing. By the time I got to my sophomore year in high school, I missed 27 days of school one semester without my parents even realizing. Because again, they would go to work in the morning and assume I was going to go to school. And then I just wouldn't. And I forged like signatures on excuses and so on. And I wound up getting kicked out of school. And I remember that day. That was a really, really vivid day. Actually, when I showed up to school my junior year, and I haven't told this story in like this kind of detail, really. I, I tell it in the book, but it's something that's like to paint the picture school started and i just didn't go and my mom asked me when school started and i was like oh it's in a couple of weeks and like she just literally didn't know because she was working full-time my dad was working full-time they were just gone so finally a couple of weeks into the school year i went to the school and just walked in very nonchalant and went to see my guidance counselor and said here to register and get my classes and you know, she sat me down and was like, you missed so many days last year, you failed all of your classes and you can't graduate. You're not going to graduate even if you went to school every day this year and next year. It's not possible. So A, you can't just show up and go to school two weeks late. B, 
we're going to expel you. And I was just like, wait, you know, no, no, you know, I had a bunch of excuses like we all do. And, you know, none of those mattered as they usually don't. And I got sent home to tell my parents that I was going to get kicked out of school. And it was a really pivotal moment in my life because that was really when I started to take a more serious look at where my life was headed and, you know, what was going to happen. There's a quote that we also say in the book that I think is super powerful, but show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And I started really looking at that. My friends too were older. So I started to see what was going to happen in my life, most likely because they were already dropping out of school and things were happening and people were, there's a lot of drug addiction and violence and then even death started happening. So I somehow managed to turn this around. I, I went to a continuation school, which a lot of people, I don't think even know what that is, but it's basically for a lot of people, it's a stepping stone to either A, in a good case, getting your GED or B, getting kicked out of school or dropping out of school. Very, very infrequently, people go and actually make up enough credits and go back to their regular high school. But I actually decided that that was a potential path forward. And I decided to try to do that. And I did it. And that was really powerful as a proof point that we're in control of our lives, you know, because up until then, I had so many excuses as to like, A, why things didn't matter or B, why, you know, again, as a teenager, I just didn't really seem to care or understand. So I wound up turning that part of my life around and getting through some other terrible adolescent issues, you know, like drugs and alcohol that I was kind of going through. And right as I was getting on the other side of that, I got back into high school. I, I literally get through my senior year. I graduating high school, my dad actually suddenly becomes very ill. Like suddenly, as in like one day, he's 48 and fine. And I come downstairs and he literally winds up going to the hospital for what we think is a heart attack. And it turns out his heart's failing and winds up going on life support and literally get getting put to the top of the list and given super low odds of survival. And for two months, we thought he was going to die he wound up getting the transplant. So he was lucky. But during that two months, I specifically was like very much shook to the core because I up until then, I just didn't really have any kind of direction or urgency or it wasn't, you know, really, I guess, aware of the preciousness of life. I guess that's probably an easy way. I think a lot of young people obviously feel like that, right? They think they're going to live forever and they think they're never going to, you know, nothing's going to matter and they're going to have plenty of time. And that really brought everything into a sudden sharp focus. And I- Talk a little I, bit about his his lifestyle too, because he was a very hard worker, right? Leave the house yeah. at five in the morning, et cetera. Yeah. And not a complainer either. You know, he he was actually in the Vietnam War and he never spoke about it at all. He was- incredibly grateful, I think, to have like a life and normalcy and family, but he worked a lot. And when I say a lot, like he went to work at like five in the morning and got home at like six or seven at night and, you know, had dinner, did a crossword puzzle and went to sleep and did that on repeat Monday through Saturday usually. So I don't have a lot of like, you know, I was really close with my dad, even though I didn't see him in the day, really. He was always a wonderful person to me and my brothers and our family. But at the same time, he just worked a ton. And I'm sure in his mind, you know, that once we graduated high school, I was literally the youngest one. And, you know, that he's got a retirement in the future. He's probably got all kinds of things that he wants to do. And suddenly at 48, he's put off all these things for this future that 
doesn't exist now or might not exist at all. That was kind of this thing where, you know, when I was at the hospital walking up and down the halls waiting to hear either the most terrible news or that maybe there's a transplant, you know, potential. I just kept thinking, like, how many people are going through this exact same thing? How many people are putting off all of their, you know, goals and dreams for some future that just might not ever exist? And, you know, that's really like, again, like that's the first time that this idea of what matters in life really started to shift, you know, the idea of what we should be valuing. And again, this was an early point. It wasn't like I suddenly had an epiphany and I was like, oh my God, I have to invest in experiences and that's going to make me a wealthy person in life. But it did give me urgency and kick me off on a journey that led me to have a life that I cannot imagine having had, had that not happened. Like I definitely would not have gone on the journey I went on. I can kind of give detail on that. Like right, right after he got the transplant, he started working on his round two of life and he had to like redo his whole life. You know, he literally had to change everything. He couldn't even really work ever again. So there was all kinds of stuff that went into like what he wanted to do and how to get to those moments. But I was looking at my life and thinking like, well, if I'm not guaranteed, you know, a certain amount of time, I better try to figure out a way to do the things I want to do or the things that I'll regret not doing. Cause really that's the thing that really sticks. And that's the, the thing I want to make sure to be clear and share is that the health situation my dad faced probably wasn't avoidable, but the regret he would have had or had at the time for all the things he didn't do, that's the thing that's avoidable. So what we can all take away from that is if we can figure out what those things are early and start you know, checking those things off our list, we can remove so much of that regret in the future that's building. So in my case, I, again, I, I went off on this journey full of this newfound urgency, but I still had all the same problems that everybody has and everybody lists. I, I didn't have any, I was literally with very little money, very little time. I didn't have any connections. I didn't really know where to start. And I hadn't really even bothered to figure out what I wanted to do, what mattered to me. So I just started doing the work. I basically started figuring out what I would regret if it, I wound up in that situation. And then I started doing stuff that I could afford to do. I started putting things on my calendar. That was really when things started to change in my life in a remarkable way because it created movement and momentum. And every little step towards something, and again, it's like, sounds sound silly to say like, yeah, I went free diving. It was totally free also in money, but I, I went and like learned how to like dive in the ocean and at a deep level and hold my breath. And this is a really, really cool experience. And what did that bring to my future life in terms of like business or financial reward? Really not much, I would say, but at the same time, it gave me the thought that, well, what else do I want to try that I don't know how to do that I could learn? Joe, you're talking about your dad's transplant and all of that, but you're, you're kind of leaving out the best part of the story. Can you talk about his trip to Mexico and how that gave you a real world example of this sort of experience that really altered his state, his internal state? Yeah, of course. So, you know, my dad, after the transplant, you know, the recovery wasn't as smooth as we had hoped. And he was 
honestly like you know feeling pretty ill still and he was going to lots of doctor's appointments and he was stuck by the hospital and he was living in a small apartment with my uncle and things were just not great so, so much so that i actually asked him at one point i said well at least you know i'm sure you're glad that you got the transplant and that worked and he basically looked at me and said no i'm not you know it wasn't he there was a moment where like life wasn't really turning out like he thought it would be and he decided to go to mexico him and my uncle had seen shawshank redemption the movie and uh, there's a wonderful ending to that wonderful film where the two prisoners that are sentenced to a life in prison wind up eventually not being in prison anymore and uh this ziwatsuneho exactly exactly and uh, i've actually been there which is an incredible place yeah. ironically my dad didn't make it there he eventually did on a trip but uh him and my uncle set out for Zihuatanejo. Um, my dad never having gone to Mexico, speaking zero Spanish, my uncle speaking like a little Spanish. He decided like, let's go try to live at the beach. And uh, the doctors all said, no, it's a terrible idea. And you know, like he's going to be too far from the hospital. And my brothers and I talked about it. And I talked to the doctors and we were just like, you know, I talked to my dad and I said, you should go. We didn't want him to be kept alive. We wanted him to live. And really that's a major difference, especially in our medical system now. And you know, they, they kind of get that part lost somewhere in translation. But yeah, so he went down there against their recommendations and with all thumbs up on our side. And he didn't even make it to Zihuatanejo. He made it to this beautiful little town called San Carlos that they stopped there as like kind of a pit stop. And they got a place temporarily while they got their bearings to figure out what to do next. Um, and it was right on the beach. And within like weeks, his health did this complete 180, like, I mean, a rebound, like nobody could have predicted or expected. And the doctors, when we started telling them about it, they were like, oh, maybe it's the, you know, getting removed from this, you know, constant orbit of the hospital and all the stress. Anyway, long story short, he wound up having like over a decade there in this little beach town. And it was just, just completely different person than I ever knew. You know, like my dad didn't do a lot of activities, didn't seem to have much of a social life whatsoever growing up. And uh, all of a sudden he was like the mayor of this town of colorful expats that lived in this little beach community that had super funny names and, you know, like Captain Bob and, you know, they all were just like different characters and uh, they would just get together and have like the best time ever. And he did stuff like spear fishing and mountain biking and hiking and things that if you had known my dad prior there, you would have been like, this is not something that he's interested in or would ever do. And he was just checking all these boxes. And it was just really, really cool to see, you know, that transformation. But that also was like a really, you know, an enlightening kind of thing of like, not everybody. And in fact, most people just don't get that second chance. And that's why the people that have those you know, near death experiences or lose someone that loses someone or something close to them happens. They're the ones that like go and make that huge change to their life and do that big thing and tell that person that they love them or, you know, hike that mountain or whatever it is. Cause, cause they, they got that urgency. So yeah, that was really inspirational. A couple of things that stood out to me about that story was that you said, you know, if he played it safe, that our idea of playing it safe may be the most dangerous thing that we can do because he would have stayed in that same situation. And so he took that leap. And I think he was only making what, like 
a thousand bucks or sixteen hundred bucks a month or something, and the yeah, place not that even. he got was four hundred bucks a month. Yeah, yeah, like that's really one of the deciding factors is they wanted to go somewhere peaceful and that they could afford. And Mexico, like, was the only place that fit the bill that you know they could still get back and forth to the hospital. But yeah, it was it was definitely they took a huge chance, a huge huge chance, and then that there's a big message there, you know, that playing it safe as you just said, can be far riskier because if they had stayed, you know, five years longer in Riverside, California, next to the hospital, you know, he wouldn't have had this life that was just, I mean, it was full of joy and new and novel experiences, but it took stepping away. It's, you know, it's all the, we've all seen the posters and you know, the memes and metaphors or whatever but like you know you have to lose sight of the shore to <laughs> get to somewhere that's important to you right you, know, you gotta you gotta have that will and how did that experience inspire you to take a leap of faith or bet on yourself yeah you know that's really when i started doing the things that i thought i would regret if i didn't you know i remember the first big thing i did was I had obviously, like a lot of people, I'd started small by doing some activities that, again, were free. Like I was free diving and I was, I started cliff diving with some friends. We had a place where we could go and cliff dive into this small little pond or lake or whatever you want to call it. And that led to us wanting to skydive, which was a bucket list kind of idea, but couldn't really afford it. But then we said, well, why don't we just plan it? And we did. We said, okay, we're going to do it in two months and we're going to save up and we're going to work odd jobs and figure it out. And we did. And we went and it was incredible. It was just this incredible experience. And like, that's an actual take a leap thing, right? That's an actual go do this thing and jump out of a plane and face this fear and get this experience. But when you do that stuff, you know, it, it tells you're somewhere inside you that, you know, tells you that you can do things if you try, if you plan it, if you take steps. So no matter how big or small the thing is, if you break it down into steps, you'll be always be surprised at what you're able to accomplish. So that inspired me to have the confidence to try more and more things. And even then though, I was like, you know, I was working like multiple jobs that were really challenging. I was doing a lot of manual labor and trying to figure out how to survive and still thinking about the traditional sense of getting rich while doing all of these things and not realizing that all of these experiences I I was having were, I guess, other people were seeing value in those experiences. People were looking at me and, and seeing me as someone who could figure out how to get things done and could do cool and interesting things. And that led to a friend of mine asking me if I'd start a company with him. And when I say a company, this is like a gross exaggeration of what most people think of when they think of a company. It's not like he was like, hey, I'm going to let's start Apple computers. You know, was, he was like, I've got a couple thousand dollars and I think we could do something like make some graphic t-shirts. So we did. I said, yeah. Well, that turned into, on accident, we got a little warehouse. And this is a fun part of the story, but we got a little warehouse that we didn't really actually need, but so that we could build a skateboard ramp in it and skateboard while we were working. Never got the skate ramp because what happened was a friend called and said, hey, will you help me ship some clothing I have? And I know you have that extra space if you haven't built the ramp yet. So we put off the ramp and 
that turned into another friend calling and saying, I heard you're helping so-and-so. And then that turned into us somehow having this shipping and logistics company that grew for about a decade. And yeah, like all of that, none of that stuff I really believe would have ever happened. And I will say also, you know, this is something that I don't talk about in the book, but so many of the folks that I wound up working with as I built that company were people that I met and forged these really important relationships with doing some kind of cool experience. Something that I had organized, like, hey, we're going to go, you know, on this three day hike, or hey, we're going to go to the desert and camp and do this fun retreat, or, you know, things that you bond over, you know, that's the kind of stuff that makes these like really strong lifelong bonds. And I think that that, that translates to success in every area. You both were sort of accumulating this treasure map, which is the concept you talk about in the book. You describe it as the pivotal concept. Don't skip this step of creating your treasure map, which are like the top 10 things you want to do before time runs out. So let's go back to Bridget now. And you're in Los Angeles. You're getting broken into a lot. (laughs) Where are you on your treasure map in terms of the things that you want to accomplish? And how does that lead you to Joe? Sure. So... Yeah, like I said, um, moving to California and Los Angeles was a real dream come true. Like something that I had always wanted to do since I was a little kid. And, you know, I got there, I got here. I still live here, actually. Um, I got here in 2007. So Mm. I was 21. I literally, I, at the time, like our office in Detroit had shut down and I was contemplating like, can I just get another job here? It's going to be some like thing that I'm not really passionate about because there's not like a lot of entertainment jobs in Michigan. So I was like just surviving on unemployment and I had literally a hundred dollars left. I remember this so vividly. And I had got a call from Warner music group in Burbank and I had applied to be an assistant there. And they called me and they're like, we can't really give you that much money, but we can pay you 27 grand a year, but you'll get a lot of cool experiences and a lot of free food and free drinks. And I was like, I'm in. <laughs> and as you can imagine, $27,000 a year in Los Angeles, particularly in Hollywood, is not a lot of runway. But I had $100 and I was like, I'm in. And I bought a Spirit Airlines ticket, which stopped two times on the way from Michigan to California. And I left all of my belongings behind. Not that I had that many, but I will always remember I just had like a one-way ticket for $100 in Spirit Airlines. And I was like, screw it. I'm just going to leave everything behind. I'm going to follow this dream. You know, like many people that live here, from all over the country, they come here to like follow their dreams. And that's what I really love about California. So yeah, I got here. I worked at Warner for a little while. And then I ended up getting back into Universal, which was my original dream was like to work in those like really, really big labels. And I worked there for another, I think, five years after I got that job. And I did all kinds of different You know, I worked with artists like when they first got signed. So I was meeting people like Taylor Swift and Drake and Kanye and Justin Bieber and the Killers and Lady Gaga and The Weeknd, like all of these people who are like literally like the biggest stars in the world now. I was meeting them when I was like 21, 22 years old here in LA and like just like seeing their ascent. So it was really cool. 
great experience. And uh, at the same time, I was meeting all of these people that had the same passions as me. And like, I was being surrounded by people that I actually felt like, oh my God, like I'm inspired. And like, they make me want to be a better person and make me want to like, keep on following my dreams. And like, I just never had that before. It was a really cool experience. So I was still completely broke, but I was also having all these incredible experiences, like going to parties in the Hollywood Hills and like going to the best restaurants because I was like, you know, my bosses all had like corporate credit cards. So (laughs) they would take us out to all of these places. But yeah, one day I was at my office and I was browsing YouTube and I saw a video of a woman hearing for the first time. And it just made me kind of stop in my tracks and think about how important music and sound had been in my own life. And she was about the same age as me. So it really like hit home, like what would my life would have you know looked like if I didn't have that, if I didn't have music and sound in my life. And I had an idea, like maybe I could, you know, give somebody hearing one day, like that would be so cool to just like do this for one person. So I had the idea of starting a company that was a social enterprise electronics company, which there was none of at the time. There was a couple other companies out there doing similar things like Tom's had just started and like Warby Parker had just started, but there was nobody doing anything in music or in sound. So I was like, I'll just start a headphone and speaker company and like do cool products and music and not even thinking about like, oh, this is going to compete with the largest companies on earth, (laughs) like the apples of the world. I was like, yeah, it'll be great. I'll just do it. Like so ignorant to the size of this industry, but it ended up being a blessing being so naive about it because I cashed out my 401k from Universal, which was only $5,000. And I started, listen, and I started it with Joe. And the way that I met Joe is through a mutual friend. And my mutual friend had said, this guy is like building schools in Guatemala and like providing clean water in Haiti. And it was like all of these things that sounded so cool to me. And I didn't know anybody that worked in charity at the time because like charity and, you know, the philanthropic space was just so foreign to me because I just thought it was like only like billionaires, like doing these things. And so when I got introduced to Joe, I was like, oh my God, like normal people can do this. (laughs) I was like mind blown that like a normal person that wasn't like a billionaire could like be involved in charity. So we met in 2012, like right after I had the idea for Listen. And yeah, we've been partners ever since. Joe, what's your recollection of you guys coming together? It's funny. Well, as Bridget said, to go up against all of the biggest brands in the world, you know, it's not a great business plan. So she needed to find someone equally ignorant. So there I was, full of, uh, you know, heart on my sleeve kind of emotions. But it's interesting because the the backstory that kind of gets us to there, you know, like my dad's my dad's story really was so important at the pivotal moments in my life. You know, at that moment after his transplant, when he moved to Mexico, I actually decided to move to the beach. I, I literally met a couple girls at a party that said they wanted a guy roommate. And I moved to the beach two weeks later because I, I knew I had to get away from my friends and where I grew up and to start somewhere fresh. And that's where I had been living for the few years prior to 
starting the company with my friend. And when we started the company and it started to take off and we started to get all these brands in, one of the brands we got in relatively early on was Tom's. We actually helped Tom's launch and we worked with them for a number of years until they outgrew us. It was an enlightening kind of experience, much like Bridget's. I just assumed that philanthropy was just some like walled garden, you know, full of rich people in tuxedos at thousand dollar plate dinner something I just literally couldn't even ever possibly understand because I didn't come from that. So that was like really cool. I was like, well, he's democratizing, you know, philanthropy and whether you agree with the method that they did, the idea of social enterprise really stuck with me. So 10 years later, the company that my partner and I built called Ramp Logistics, we actually had about 100 employees and it was in this you know giant warehouse and all these things were happening and my dad got sick again and this time it was you know the tail end of his life this one didn't have the hail mary pass with the heart transplant he got cancer which is really common for people that have transplants because of the immunosuppressant drugs they take and he was winding down we brought him home for some in-home hospice care and i just remember again just sitting there thinking like, what does he care about? Like, this is when he knows, you know, it's the end of his life. And my dad was just a really super intelligent person. And it was just really apparent, you know, the conversations and the things we talked about, it was all the stuff he did that made a difference that made the world better, you know, and he didn't have a lot of ways to do that. And remarkably, when he was in Mexico, he actually started a charity more or less on accident by starting to give money he was making $716 a month. And he started giving him and another friend were giving $100 to this family that lived in an actual dump, for lack of a better word, it was actual garbage collection, like yard thing where they had shanties. And they started donating money. And then some other friends heard about it. And they were like, well, if you guys are doing it, we'll donate too. And literally that grew. It's still in existence. It's a pretty big organization down in that neck of the woods called Castaway Kids. But they've helped hundreds of kids go all the way through college now, provided educations. All these things all started with one person and like $100. So he was really, really proud of that, of course. So at that moment, it gave me that inflection moment of again, of saying, well, what is my treasure map right now? Because it changes, right? As things happen, you know, I felt really lucky and fortunate to have built this successful company and, you know, have financial security for the first time in my entire life. And by the way, I didn't have any like any money in the bank. I was, well, you know, there was some money on paper because I had this company, but literally had been paying myself like $40,000 a year for a number of years and had just upped my salary to like around 80, I think at the time. So I wasn't like, again, this was far from like your friends on Wall Street kind of money or whatever. Um, it's definitely, I was surviving. And I said to my business partner, I don't want to do this. I started thinking about it and I was like, as much as this is probably a really successful financial future, it's going to take another decade or so to build it into something that is really, really worth it, quote unquote, for the old school rich. But at that time in my life, uh, there was just so many things I wanted to do and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And crazy enough, again, Tom's had worked with us years before and they had left years before. I got an email from them saying that they were donating their one millionth shoe. And that was the moment it all kind of clicked. And I was like, I need to just leave and start something that 
can give back now, not when I'm rich, not when I'm Bill Gates and all of those types of things. Cause not the reality is as much as I have confidence in my ability to get things done, I'm not sure that I'll be quote unquote rich financially ever. And I don't really care, but I know I can do something now while I'm able and that's what I'll care about. So that's why I wound up in Guatemala building schools and in Haiti, giving water filtration and doing that other stuff. And that's how Bridget, you know, found me and connected. And when she connected with me, she showed me this video and I didn't really talk about it in the young age story, but music was always like an escape for me. It was definitely a huge part of my life. I was really into same thing, a lot of classic rock, but also like a lot of punk rock and a lot of hip hop, just really everything from the era. And I remember one of the first things I did when I was younger at Columbia Record House, you could do the subscription to get actual physical albums in the mail. And I, I, my parents would never have done that and let me do that. So I just filled it out with a fake name. And back then they didn't have computers to really check this stuff. So we just got 12 albums in the mail one day, and then I just never responded to anything. <laughs> so that was my record collection. I don't recommend that, but that was what I did. So when Bridget showed me this video of this girl hearing for the first time, it was just so powerful. You know, it was just like, wow, you know, the idea of somebody not hearing and them being able to hear and how important music's been in our lives. And I was just like all in. And, you know, Bridget kind of cut our story, I guess, short because like after that moment we met, we literally high-fived and this is an absolute non-exaggeration. This isn't like an anecdote for an interview. We literally flew to China a week later like with just like a handshake. I was like, let's go figure out how to make headphones and speakers. How hard can that be? Well, you know, we'll draw some stuff. We'll get some stuff that we like. And we went and we figured it out. And that was actually toward the end of the year. But by March of the following year, we launched the brand. And by August of the following year, we were actually on the ground doing our first hearing mission. And we were literally sitting there with these plastic chairs where all of the people would come and sit down to get fitted with hearing aids to see if they could hear or not. And, you know, it was just a really powerful experience. And there was an 18-year-old girl who came. It was her, her actual 18th birthday. This was just like, it was a moment that again, Bridget and I, I'm sure like, we'll never, ever, there's no possible way to forget this moment because, you know, her parents explained to us that it took them the three days to get there. They took buses and walked and had to like hike over, you know, it was, it was just a journey, but she had never been to the doctor and they wanted, you know, she'd been deaf her whole life or unable to hear her whole life. And they wanted to just know that she could never hear. They wanted to confirm it for sure. So they actually didn't really expect her to be able to hear. And she sat in this chair and we put the hearing aids in and it wasn't even like 10 seconds later, she's crying and her mom's crying and her dad's crying and we're crying. And the tragedy of the stories, we we didn't film any of this, by the way, because we were all crying, but we should have uh, captured it because it was such a powerful moment. And that was the beginning of a decade of traveling around the world and giving over 50,000 people hearing. That's all started from Bridget's $5,000 401k and her idea and me being dumb enough to think that Apple and Samsung and Sony and Bose aren't that big of a problem. <laughs> Bridget, a uh, technical question. How does a hearing aid work? It's basically amplification. 
everywhere we go actually has like different hearing aids, which I think is interesting, but it's, it's really all about amplifying the sound and like nine out of 10 people who can't hear can actually hear with a hearing aid. So there's always like one out of 10 that has to use something more powerful, like a body aid or surgery or something. But I've learned like so much about that world. It's so interesting. It's the number one disability in the world is hearing which you would never have thought that because it doesn't get like the love in the media, which mm-hmm. a lot of other causes do that are also worthy causes, of course. But you would think that hearing would get more. And that was like another reason why we wanted to do this is because there was no one like like talking about this issue. And it's very solvable in terms of like giving somebody a hearing aid. So it's a speaker inside of your ear, basically. Yep. And I know you got this partnership with Delta, which is fantastic, but can you give us a snapshot of how that came to be? Like what kind of leaps of faith did you have to take in order for that to happen? Sure. So yeah, after we started the company, we raised a little bit of money. We never did like a huge round of financing or anything like that. But how we did grow the the brand is to link up with these large corporations that like kind of lacked an authentic story, as I like to say. They were like borrowing our authenticity. So one of the first things that we did was we did a commercial with Google where they like chose us out of all of these brands and they came to our office and our office was like literally like 200 square feet. Like it was tiny. And they came with all of these people and it looked like they were filming like a Game of Thrones episode or something. Like it was so crazy to us. But yeah, that video ended up getting like 50 million plus views. And it was the video was about our story with Listen and how like this, you know, YouTube video inspired us to start this like ripple effect of a brand. And then after that, we actually ended up meeting somebody from Delta Airlines like at a party. And he was a great guy and he ended up buying the headphones. And then he contacted us afterward and was like, I love the product. Like, what can we do together? And at first it was just going to be like a little partnership. But over the next like three years, it turned out to be, we made millions of headphones for Delta Airlines and we got to like do this huge commercial with them in Peru. And basically every person in business class that was on a Delta flight would use our headphones and then they would have the bag, which told the story. And then they'd also see the commercial that we made in Peru. And the commercial was about these two boys that we're hearing for the first time that were brothers. And it's just such a great spot if you have a chance to check it out. I loved that whole experience. That was one of my favorite things I've ever done in my life was to see this brand that I had ideated in my dining table, basically like grow to this thing that was like this worldwide commercial and cause. It was so cool. That's what's interesting about this because without realizing it, you're becoming experiential billionaires, but you're also becoming financially stable through just following your curiosity and having these experiences. So let's talk a little bit about how that concept of experiential billionaire came to be. And then I want to talk about the framework of that. Sure. So I think it's funny. Yeah, I think that the assumption was that we were getting really, really rich around this time because we were (laughs) 
we were like on the Today Show and Good Morning America. And like, we literally had like Kim Kardashian, like writing about how much she loves us and like stuff like that, which was awesome. You didn't awesome. have to kick money down to walk into your No, your like we, yeah. Like, and, but the reality of the situation is that we were, you know, doing fine. Like we were surviving and we were super happy and it was, it was great, but we weren't like paying ourselves that much because we were using the money that we were making to give it away, to give people hearing and then to pay for like the, you know, like the, the flights and the hotels and all the stuff that we're doing around the world, like, you know, costs money to travel to, to give people hearing. So all of the money was actually going to that. So there was one year that I was on the Forbes and Inc. 30 under 30. This is like in 2015. And I thought it was like, I was obviously so honored and I loved it. But I also thought it was hilarious because I was like, there's no way I belong here. Like, I, and not unless they met 30 people with less than $30 in their bank account. <laughs> and so that was actually the impetus of Experiential Billionaire. Because Joe and I would joke all the time, like when people were like, you guys are killing it. And like they saw us in Forbes and they'd be like, oh, can I borrow some money? And I'm like, I don't have any money, but but we are experiential billionaires. And so even then it was like, even in like my social media profile, it was like, you know, about me and I would put experiential billionaire. So like this like whole inside joke has been going on for like a long time, but it turns out it is real. And like, that is really how we feel. And we feel like we've just lived these lives that are so full of riches that we're like living like, you know, a billionaire or better than. Joe, talk about the principles of the experiential billionaire, the ones that you guys list out in the book. Yeah, absolutely. So the book itself and the platform, you know, and what this current shape of experiential billionaire is in the world started when COVID happened, you know, when when the world shut down, there was a lot of things that happened simultaneously in, in our lives. And that's relevant because that's when we started to put this all into a shape and what it was in like in the form of tools to help other people live this way because what happened was we stopped doing the missions and we realized you know it was very clear to us then that everything that we wanted out of this company was through giving people hearing not selling headphones and speakers and as soon as we stopped doing the missions we looked at like how we could help people improve their lives. And we reached out to a bunch of folks and said, you know, hey, what do you think would be the most impactful thing that Bridget and I could do? And everyone kept coming back and saying, you know, you guys might not realize it, but all of these stories that you share of all of these things you're doing are incredibly inspirational to other people because, you know, it shows other people that you could do that too, you know, because the people, especially the people that know us, they know where we came from and they know that, you know, it's not some situation where we're like a trust fund kid that's just like, hey, I'm going to travel the world or some travel influencer, like far from it. You know, I'm, I post like once a year. <laughs> so like literally, you know, when we heard all that, we started, you know, looking at, you know, okay, well, what does it mean to be an experiential billionaire that we joke about? And when we started to do the deep dive into the research around it all, it just started to make so much more sense in a, a really clear way. 
And we didn't stop, by the way, with the research. You know, we actually did our own. We we had a, did a survey of over twenty thousand people, asking them what the most important experiences of their lives are, what the most valuable things they've ever done were, what their biggest regrets were, why they regret them, what stops them from doing those things, and it all just came back to you know this data set of like these are all the things people regret. And by the way, there's a lot of studies about regret and about the things people regret toward the end of their life. The thing that was really interesting about our survey is a lot of those results were across all ages. I thought that was really interesting. People had the same types of regrets about all the things that they didn't do or weren't doing. So it started to just become really clear that there was this giant regret that was hanging over most people, like three out of four people based on just about all the studies or more about all the stuff they wanted to do and didn't do. And this isn't just bucket list. This isn't like, you know, I always wanted to climb Mount Everest or travel to a hundred countries. This is simple stuff. This was tons and tons of answers we got from 20,000 people that were things like, I always wanted to go back to Arizona where I grew up, or I always wanted to speak better Japanese so I could learn more of my family history, or I always wanted to play the guitar, or, you know, things that you could solve for that people waited until they were out of time. It was too late. So we started to put together the book in, as a framework of just like all the research and tools. And then it started to become more clear that, you know, like sharing stories made that a lot easier. And then our stories were really easy examples to use. But the first thing that we talk about is the treasure map. It's really finding and rediscovering what your dreams and goals are, because so many people bury them away. They had goals and dreams that they started putting off to this fictional someday in the future. We like to call that someday syndrome. And then they just forgot about them because they assume that someday it's just going to magically happen. And it's just not on top of mind. Or even maybe finding it in the first place, if it's something that you never thought of, but you need to figure that out. And uh, the tool to do that, to create that urgency minus the near-death experiences is we run through an exercise where we have people imagine that their doctor called and said, hey, I've got some bad news. You've only got a year left to live. And then what are the 10 things that you know, if you don't do those 10 things in this next year, you're going to be filled with just immeasurable regret. So you have to do those things. And then once people write those things down, we have them go through another phase of this exercise where it's the 30-day call, the doctor calls back, you know what? Read the test results wrong. You've actually only got 30 days. Really sorry about that. You might want to make some changes. So write down the 10 things you would do if it was only 30 days. Again, really things you could do in the amount of time left. What are the most important things that you would do? And then one more time, the doctor calls. This guy's about to get his license revoked because it's malpractice all day long, but you've got 24 hours. And what are the five things you would do in the next 24 hours, your last 24 hours? And it's it's interesting. The reason we do the three stages of this exercise, and I think it's really helpful for people to see, is those are different things. And obviously, there would be different things if you had five years or 10 years, because certain things take longer. But you can see the through lines. You know, the one day stuff is always called the people you love and that's, you know, do those types of things that you could do in one day. The 30-day thing is, you know, a little bit bigger things that are like going to take maybe some real effort. The year things are things that could take real, you know, like things that you may have thought impossible up until the moment you realize how important it was to you. And then you start thinking about how I could actually get that done. And then when we ask people at the end of this exercise, how many of any of those things are you working on? 
the answer is almost always none across the board. Like literally almost none of any of those things are on your calendar now. Why? Why are these things the most important thing that you would do if you knew your time was finite? They're not on your calendar now. The sad truth is your time is finite. You just haven't realized it or made that connection in a, in a real enough way. You don't know next year is guaranteed. So, so that exercise helps people really see some things that they probably have put off or haven't really seen. And then once you get that as a guidepost, you know, this is like the compass, the way forward from that, that we go through in the book is how to visualize the next step, you know, you have to create that urgency with that first step, but then how do you visualize what that future actually looks like? And then how do you take action, create that momentum, start breaking it down, you know, the baby steps required, you know, it's really goal planning, goal setting. And we have a lot of really cool tools around that. How to identify the smaller things, because to us, you know, I think that again, there's a misconception that all of the things for experiential wealth are these big ticket items, but the gold really is in all the everyday stuff because that's where it all accrues. You know, that's if you can fill up every day with a handful of little things that matter, you're going to have a lot more success financially slash experientially wealthy wise. And then the the last parts of the book, we go through like those core categories that really make that wealth happen. And that's relationships, learning, getting through the excuses of time, money, and fear. And we live in a society where our time is being stolen constantly with technology. And there's a lot of benefits to technology, obviously, but, you know, using it correctly is incredibly important. And then, you know, like living forever, like the legacy type of thing, basically always learning and playing. And this is all, we we didn't just kind of like go through like our lives and think these are the things that would matter. This is based on the answers in the survey. Like these are the things people said mattered the most to them. And they fell really easily into these buckets. And like the legacy one really is how to live forever. That's the kind of thing where doing things that you know at the end of your life, you're going to feel great about like, because it made a difference in somebody's day. And again, you don't have to start the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or whatever the heck your support. There's 1.6 million charities, I think in the US right now. All you need to do is some positive things in the world every day, and you're going to feel pretty good about that. And that's really, I guess, the key to removing so much of that regret is, you know, once you identify that treasure map list, and you start checking those boxes, you're taking those away from this future regret. And as you get better and better at it, you start redoing this treasure map. And basically, you kind of get better at evolving, I guess. So I'm sure Bridget has a lot to add. Bridget, within that framework, you guys talk about taking radical responsibility. What does that have to do with being an experiential billionaire? It goes back to the whole someday concept of a lot of people's excuses are I'll do X someday. But the reality is that you have to do it now because there's an exercise in the book. The very first exercise is a memento mori chart, which is uh, 76 boxes. That's the average lifespan of an American. So it's actually 74 for men and 78 for women. And I actually have a printed off version right on my bookshelf because I look at it every single day. And it gives me the urgency to do the things that I want to do and not make excuses on why. So taking radical responsibility is basically just taking away all of your excuses on why you can't do what you want to do. And those excuses are usually time, which 
everyone has the same 24 hours. And of course there's, you know, going to be pushback on when I say that because people will be like, well, I have kids or I have school. Yeah, or, you're privileged and blah, blah, blah. like, yeah, everybody has those things. Right. But what you can do is take like the time that you might, you know, watch a TV show or do something else and like do something that you really want to do. You know, if you always were like, someday I'm going to learn how to like surf or someday I'm going to learn how to make dumplings as like, just like a little thing, you know, it's like, okay, take that time this week, like make that someday experience like Sunday, right? Like do it on Sunday. And so I think a lot of the book is about taking away those excuses because at the end of the day, like you only have to answer to yourself, you know, that's why three out of four people regret the things that they don't do. It's like at the end of the day, they're like, oh, I could have done that, but I didn't do that. And that's the number one thing I regret in my life. So I love the concept around like someday syndrome and taking that away from people's excuses. And Joe, yeah. you know, you're a guy, I'm a guy. You're talking about believing in the make-believe. What do I, <laughs> I could see a lot of guys hearing that and kind of pushing back. What do, what do you mean by believing in make-believe? Oh man, I mean, it's about you know your inner child. It's about playing. It's about remembering what it's like to be a kid because kids know they're in the moment. Like they know we only have the moment. They never get, they're not thinking about the future. And again, that's where the real wealth lies. You know, when you do something strictly for the fun of it, and there's a big difference in my opinion. And we talked a lot about this, Bridget and I, as we wrote the book, you know, the goal of learning something new, for instance, like if you want to play guitar, which is fun, you're still trying to get better at it. There's games and things you do like that are fun just for fun. Like you don't want to get better at it. You just want to do it because the actual act of doing it is fun. There's no like level of it. So to me, breaking down that kind of barrier, whether it's because you think I'm a guy and I can't have fun like that anymore or whatever, or whatever your reason or rationale is, I guarantee you once you do that thing and you have fun, you're like, I should do that more often. I should do that all the time. You know, you know, like Bridget was just saying, at the end of the day, whatever your reason was for not doing it, you're not going to care about that. You're going to think that was dumb. I should have done that because other people are doing that and having fun. And, you know, we talk about that with, you know, this is the same with fear. You know, the things that we don't do, we just grossly underestimate the potential outcome of something, of trying something like what the positive outcome could be. And then we overestimate tremendously what the negative outcome could be. And most of the time, the negative outcome is not that bad. And the potential positive outcome is really, really, really good. And, you know, when you look at stuff like, just like, for instance, like imagine if you and like four guy friends had a squirt gun fight in the backyard at somebody's house, you know, that would be fun. When's the last time you planned one? 20 years ago? Why? It's like $7 to go buy some, you know, water guns. Like do stuff like that. Fill it with your day instead of scrolling on your phone or doing whatever you do. Make a memory that you're going to have forever. And that's going to add value to your life. And we have a lot of examples of the stuff like that that we think are, are really fun. But you can also just learn a lot from watching kids. Yeah, words, and that's one of my favorite chapters to write. I was like laughing the entire time when we were writing it because the whole book, I mean, not the whole book, but a couple of the chapters in the book are pretty dark and deep and very about urgency and life and death. 
But that chapter is all about just like having a good time. And I loved writing it. I loved thinking about what are my most memorable things. One of the questions in the survey of the 20,000 people was, you know, think about something you did when you were a kid and then think about why you don't do that anymore. And all of these answers were like, I caught fireflies. I played hide and seek. I played truth or dare. Like, and it's like, all of those things are free. Like, why don't you do them anymore and like bring that value into your life? And I think that unintentionally, that was like one of the most impactful questions that we had and one of the most impactful chapters. And it really like came at it from like more of like a have fun type of thing, but people just forget to have fun as adults. So I love that chapter. The message is start where you are. You don't have to go and see the Northern Lights. You don't have to go to Peru. You don't have to go and do an ayahuasca ceremony in Colombia. Just start with creating experiences where you are with free stuff and with people that are already around you or with yourself, if that's where you are. So paint something, do something like that's like fun and creative and not about like being the best, you know, like I'm not going to like be in MoMA anytime soon, but I would, I like to like paint things. I like to like make up jokes. I'm not going to like be on HBO telling, you know, stand up set, but I, (laughs) but I like to make those things up. And you don't know where that's going to lead. You know, that's, this is a part of this magical cycle, right? Where fun, new, novel, meaningful experiences create strong bonds and relationships. And then those strong bonds and relationships give a lot more opportunity for more meaningful experiences. So I've got some really easy examples. I actually started with two friends of mine in LA. We went and started playing a pickup game of soccer in a park. And none of us had played soccer in 15 years at this point since we were kids. And we were like, okay, let's play soccer. Some other friends heard and came the next weekend. The next weekend, they brought friends. I'm not even kidding. By like the fifth weekend, there was like 60 people showing up. There was college, you know, literally like actual amazing athletes. A couple of ex-pros came. It got so good to the point where I couldn't play anymore. I was like, I'm not good enough to play. But this was free and it started and it was just this really fun thing. And the reason I use that as an example is a lot of these people that I wound up playing soccer with, they actually started working with me because they had companies and I had this logistics business. And then from there, we had this other relationship that developed. And that's what happens with these small, like you could have a literally you know, random game of freeze tag in your backyard and build some new friendships that could lead to something completely unexpected and extremely valuable in your life. And that's Mm -hmm. why it's so important to do those things. Because you know when you're not going to get that extremely unexpected valuable thing? If you're in some monotony of doing something like, well, it's easier for me to just sit on my couch and scroll Netflix or do this thing, or I'm just using something to, you know, waste time because I don't really know what else to do. It's so easy to do stuff with other people that will create strong bonds. Yeah, look, this sounds like a great idea. And when people write books, and I know you all give talks about this, a lot of listeners may hear that and go, oh, I couldn't do that because you have to be anointed by whoever the governing agency of people who give talks or write books are. I'm always curious, what's the backstory? How did you all decide, okay, let's take this concept and do something with it? Did someone 
bring you into their organization and say, talk about this thing that you're calling experiential billionaire, or you know, how did you decide to get a book deal? How did all that happen? We definitely didn't have anyone ask us to come speak on this topic or anything like that. We truly felt like this was the best thing that we could do with our time is to help other people have meaningful experiences in their life. And I really feel that like to my core, you know, after Starkey and Listen like stopped doing the missions in 2020, we felt like a deep loss of purpose and we were searching for that purpose. And like Joe was saying earlier, we asked people, what should we do? Like we're kind of lost right now. And everybody said, tell your story. And, and we had no idea how to start writing a book or to start speaking. But like every day we do more research about it. We started, you know, just writing out one of my favorite parts of the process actually was just writing out all of our favorite memories. We would talk on the phone all day and just say like, remember when we were in Rwanda and like this happened, that was so crazy. And then we like went through all of our photos of like the last like 12 years that we've had as business partners And it was just like a long process, but it was really cool. And it was kind of in that space in 2020, I was actually going through a really bad depression. And this is part of what helped me out of that. It's like going over all of these nostalgic moments that like we've had, you know, as partners, but also like with my own friends and with my family and with, you know, all these things that we've done in our lives. And I was like, I can't not do this. Like, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to go write. I want to speak. I want to like help other people do the things that they want to do because it will improve their lives. And like, I don't think that there's anything like that's my gift to the world. And that's my gift like in me. And I think that Joe feels the same way. And yeah, we didn't have a plan. And and there's been a lot of bumps in the road. Like, uh, I'm sure. As you know, it was like being part of the speaking community, you've heard about our journey with the publisher and like how the publisher shut down like five days after we turned in the book and things like that. And there was a lot. I didn't hear that. What happened with that? That's a pretty story. (laughs) There's been a lot of stories in this whole. A lot of wealth in there. <laughs> yeah. we Well, I mean, first of all, so we started the book process with my like mental health breakdown in 2020. All these things were happening. I got separated. I moved. I had like a break in at my place. Listen was really struggling. So we weren't paying ourselves. So I was not only like financially not there, I was emotionally not there. A lot of things happening. And then over time, we had a publisher and then the publisher like shut down and I'll let Joe tell this story, but a really big personal thing happened with his wife and he can tell the story, but it's just part of this whole roller coaster. So it wasn't like we decided one day that we were just going to wake up and write this book and it was all going to be smooth and easy. And, and that's how it is. Like It's hard to do anything big, but now that it's done, I can look back and I'm so proud of this book. And it's it's like, the greatest thing I've ever done in my life was like, like I feel like like this is like my life's work, and I just want to continue doing this. And even though it was so hard, like, and I think that's a lesson in itself is that to do the hard things because it might be hard in the moment, but when you're done with it, you're like, oh my god, I'm so glad that I did that and that I persevered. There was a moment where we talked about it. I remember, and we said, "What's the expectation? You know, like if we write this book, what do we really think?" we're going to achieve. I remember saying like, I think we can really help people. I think we can help change people's lives. 
And I was like, even if we help, you know, a hundred people, like that's really cool. Like what's the downside, you know, if we can get this done and we can keep our expectation at like, we're going to help people. I don't know how many, but that's the only goal. We're not like trying to make the book into like some, you know, we're going to create some billion dollar financial empire or something by looking at it like that. It made it like, yeah, it could it do that. It absolutely can do that. We knew it could do that. And we've gotten a lot of really incredible feedback. And the personal story, I think, is a testament to the lifestyle itself being so powerful. And I'll share a really brief version of it. But, you know, we wrote the first draft of the book and it was finished in in the middle of uh, 2022. And we had planned on launching it in October of that year. And right after we finished the first draft of the book and started the revisions, my wife was suddenly diagnosed with cancer. And it was a completely out of, you know, nowhere experience. Our, we had two, we have two kids. And at the time, our youngest was only three months old, and our, our oldest was two and a half. And we had to put everything on hold, obviously, with the book and everything else in life for a while while she battled cancer. And she did it. You know, she went through six months of chemotherapy and the double mastectomy and six weeks of radiation and all this and stuff that, you know, you think how tough you think you are in the world, you know, watching my wife go through that. I mean, the women and the people that go through um, cancer and come out survivors are just, I have nothing but the most incredible respect and awe for them and their fortitude. But she got through to the other side. And as soon as we found out that the treatments were working and, and this was about six months in, you know, that things were looking good. Bridget and I, you know, I started really working on the book again and Bridget had been trying to keep things moving. But it was really interesting because this really speaks to the message of the book because my wife and I talked about what we were going to do post her cancer. You know, Once it was all done, she still had six more months left of treatments, even though we were pretty sure it was working and nothing changed. Our plans were the same as they were before she got diagnosed because we had been doing all this work. We knew what our treasure maps were. We knew what we wanted to do. Like my dad had to change his entire life post heart transplant because it was not what he wanted. He was stuck in this path, un unaware, unwittingly. And with my wife and I, we were like, wow, we actually, there's not like a big thing. And there was no regret for how we spent the last decade together because we had together traveled to like a dozen plus countries and done all of these crazy things that we wanted to do big and small, but because we thought about it and we planned it and we filled up our time and that's really the message. And, and there was a moment in my life prior, like before, as we were thinking about doing the book that I think kind of sums up that feeling. And I remember talking to some friends about it. And that's like, if you were to get, you know, again, this all, there's a lot of death in these conversations. So I hope people don't think this is morbid. It's actually just a way to contemplate the idea of the finality of life in a way to make you motivated. But if you were to suddenly walk out and get hit by a car today, and you would be like lying on the ground, would you be satisfied? Would you think that you were living the life that you wanted to live for yourself? Or would that be the moment that, and that last moment where it's just you and yourself, you actually have to admit to yourself, I didn't try. I didn't do the things I wanted. I made excuses. And that's powerful. And if you can think to yourself, if 
something happened to me today. Like even now I think about that often, like I know I'm trying really, really hard. Not everything's working, not even close, but but we're trying. And I think that's really comforting to know that I'll at least have a lot less regret than I think I would if I wasn't. What's interesting is I've never talked about this publicly. I've only only told one person this in my entire life. But when I leave my house during the day, when I just go run errands or whatever, I do think to myself, this could be the last time I'm in this place. I'm going to make up my bed and straighten it up because if someone has to come in here. <laughs> oh my God. I literally do the same thing. They go through my stuff. I don't want this to be out. I wonder what story they're going to make up about that, you know, but it also puts me in the space of this could Where be my last day. So let me be as present as I can possibly be on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's a great way to live. I think more people should live like that. So yeah, it's cool that you do it too, Rich. (laughs) I literally did it like yesterday. I went to like Whole Foods and I like made my bed and I was like, what am I doing? (laughs) Yeah. Well, my wife would divorce me if I didn't make the bed. So (laughs) (laughs) no one here, but my dog. So (laughs) Well, look, I love the book. I'm a huge fan. I'm going to go back and really, you know, I read it for like the podcast interview, but I didn't read it, read it. Like I didn't do the exercises and everything. So I'm going to go back and and really dive in. And I encourage everyone listening and watching this to do the same thing. Where can people connect with both of you? Sure. So our website is experientialbillionaire.com. And that's the same for our Instagram our personal sites where we book our workshops and keynotes are bridgethilton.com and joehoff.com. And you all have some supplementary exercises that I saw you reference in the book. Yeah, there's all of the exercises that are actually on the website for free. So if anyone wants to check them out, please do. And please let us know if this conversation or the book or our keynote or any of our resources inspire you. We'd love to hear like what people do with this information. Beautiful. Well, thank you all so much again for taking the time to come on and share your story. And thanks for all the effort you had to put in to get this book out into the world. (laughs) It truly is making the world a better place. You know, we've known each other sort of professionally for several months now. And I had no idea what, I mean, I heard the concept at one of the conferences that we were all at, but I didn't know the depth of the stories. And it's funny because I had assumptions based on the way you all present yourselves and based on how you look. And and I found myself just laughing out loud while I was reading your book and just thinking about the experiences you actually had compared to the ones that I thought you you had. So, you know, it's just another reminder. You can't ever judge a book by its cover. And well, now uh, I want to hear what you thought of us. <laughs> well, you know, I just kind of thought, oh yeah, they're probably come from money and they're like privileged and that kind of thing. And it's, it's. Oh man, I wish. No. <laughs> Is reading this story, getting arrested, especially and, and Joe's story of what's, what happened with his dad. I mean, those are very inspiring, lots of inspiring stories in the book. So. But we'll put everything in the show notes and uh, I want everybody to get this book, Experiential Billionaire. And I look forward to seeing you guys again in person. Oh, thank Thanks, you. Light. Yeah, we really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with authors and speakers, Bridget Hilton and Joe Huff. You can grab a copy of Experiential Billionaire everywhere books are sold. And I highly recommend following Bridget and Joe's journey on the socials at 
experiential billionaire. And of course, I'll put links to everything that we talked about in the show notes, which you can always find at lightwatkins.com slash podcast. And if you enjoyed our conversation and you found it inspiring and you're now thinking to yourself, wow, I'd love to hear Light interview someone like Richard Branson or somebody like that. Here's how you can help to make that interview happen. You see, I reach out to people like Richard Branson all the time, and some of them accept, a lot of them don't. But the thing you can do to help me get people onto the podcast is to simply leave a rating or review. Because when I reach out to people and their gatekeepers get my email inviting them onto the show, first thing they do is they go to my podcast page and they want to see how engaged of an audience I have. And they can tell that through the ratings and the reviews. And that's why you always hear podcasters like me say, please leave a rating, please leave a review. It's not just some sort of vanity metric. It actually helps to get bigger guests onto the podcast so we can have conversations about people that you've heard about before. Here's what you do. You click on your screen, you scroll down past those first six or seven episodes, you'll see a space with five blank stars. Click the one on the right and you've given us a five-star rating. And if you want to go the extra mile, that would always be appreciated. Write a one-line review about what you appreciate from this podcast. And thank you very much in advance for that. Also, don't forget you can watch these interviews on YouTube. If you ever want to put a face to a story, just go to YouTube and type in Light Watkins Podcast. You'll see the whole playlist there. And I post the raw, unedited version of every podcast interview inside of my Happiness Insiders online community, which is at thehappinessinsiders.com. And you can listen to all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat. Plus, you can access a bunch of fun challenges for doing your inner work. All right. I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me, just like you, taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you. Sending you lots of love. Have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.